Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in Doctrine and Covenants 20 through 22. And this is right around April 6th. This is the organization of the church, isn't it, Bryce? Yes. And we can consider the Section 20 kind of like a constitution. You can almost break it down into different articles and say Article 1, Article 2, much like the U.S. Constitution, and just go back to the basics. And I think one of the reasons for doing so is that, bless our hearts, we have a tendency as members of the church to sometimes go beyond and do more, or sometimes we do less. Sometimes in our zeal to serve and our enthusiasm to fulfill our calling, sometimes we go beyond what we should be doing, and we forget the very basics of the church. Much like uh, Elder Ballard once said, occasionally we find some who become so energetic in their church service that their lives become unbalanced. They start believing that the programs they administer are more important than the people they serve. They complicate their service with needless frills and embellishments that occupy too much time, cost too much money, and sap too much energy. One of the most important things we do through the gospel of Jesus Christ is to build people. Properly serving others requires effort to understand them as individuals, their personalities, their strengths, their concerns, their hopes, their dreams, so that the correct help and support can be provided. Frankly, it's much easier to just manage programs than it is to understand and truly serve people. Our goal should always be to use the programs of the church as a means to lift, encourage, assist, teach, love, and perfect people. Programs are tools. Their management and staffing must not take priority over the needs of the people they are designed to bless and serve. I really like that because it reminds us that sometimes we go a little bit too far and we do too much. But by the same token, sometimes we do too little and we don't take full advantage of what the church is. We make the church less than it really is, and we don't think it serves our purposes. So to the end that we don't make the church more or less than it is, I think it's valuable to go back to the Constitution go back to the basics and say, what is the very basic parts of the church? If we were to just simply say, here is the church in its most basic forms, what are those building blocks? And then in my calling, if I remember those building blocks, I can better serve the people with the things that they need. So that's kind of the approach we're going to take, is let's go back and kind of assume that we have a constitution and that the Lord is saying, here's how you build my church on earth. Sometimes it's important just to say, here are the basics, so that we don't lose sight of the bigger picture. So let's jump into it. Look at verse 1. I would suggest that Article 1 is verse 1, and that is that your church is coming in the front door. We will not sneak in the back door. We will come in and obey the laws and the ordinances of the country in which we are established which is probably why the restoration occurs in New York. Uh, one of our listeners is in law school out in Boston. Her name is Jody, and she is taking a religion and constitution class. And she shared the thought that when this country was first founded, six states had an established religion, and that New York was actually one of the most tolerant, religiously speaking which is probably why the Lord chose New York, is because the Restoration would have faced a lot of opposition in other states and definitely other countries. But that goes to the point that when the Lord comes in, He comes in the front door, and we obey the laws. We will go in China when China welcomes us in. We won't sneak in the back door. We will be regularly organized and established agreeable to the laws of the country. I think that sets a precedent for everyone to understand that the Lord will build his kingdom through wisdom and order and properness and following the rules of the land. 
he's kind of honoring the agency of these governmental entities. That's interesting. I think that's that's very significant for the very first verse. Okay, so the next two articles, Article 2 and what I would call Article 3, form what I would say is the very basis of the church. Why do we need an earthly organization? The first one, Article 2, starting in verse 2, is the keys and authority and the ordinances of the priesthood. And then the second one, which I would call Article 3, which starts about in verse 8, is the truth, restoration of true doctrines. And that really is why we have the church. The church provides ordinances and keys and authorities of the priesthood and is the reservoir of true doctrine. It's from the church that we learn what true doctrine is. So watch what the Lord does. Starting in verse 2, the foundation of this church was when he called Joseph Smith, ordained him as an apostle. He called Oliver Cowdery, ordained him as an apostle. We have a first and a second elder. So the church has the authority, the keys, restored from heaven. And then he says in verse 7 that God also gave Joseph Smith commandments which inspired him and gave him power from on high by the means which were prepared to translate the Book of Mormon. So there is the, the foundation of the church. We have the keys and authority and the ordinances of the priesthood, and we have the truth restored through the Book of Mormon. And that's why we need an earthly organization. We need ordinances. We need authorized ordinances done by those who have keys and authority from God. But we need to know what the truths are. We are not each supposed to come up with what's the truth relative to the plan of salvation. That is revealed through the church. And our primary source of truth in this church is, verse 8, the Book of Mormon, because it contains a record of a fallen people and the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He adds to that and points in verse 11 that not only does the Book of Mormon provide truth, but it proves to the world that the Holy Scriptures are true. So the Book of Mormon validates the Bible and proves that God does in fact inspire men and call them to his holy work in this age and generation. So now he begins to roll out, okay, now that we've established the church is the authority and the truth, let's roll out the order of the most important truths. Notice what he does next in section 20. Let's lay out the most important of all truths. There's an order to truth here. So starting in verse 17, here is the truth of truths. The greatest of all truths is that there is a God in heaven. Now, just as a side note, the single greatest truth we offer the world is who God is. That was the first truth revealed in the first vision. It came before Book of Mormon, it came before priesthood, it came before temple and three degrees of glory. The very first thing God restored in this dispensation is who he and his son are. And we know God. We know who they are. We know their purposes. We know where he came from. We know what he wants. So truth number one, is that there is a God in heaven. And may I suggest, as you evaluate your church calling, I think one thing we need to realize is, okay, my calling is to help provide gospel ordinances, priesthood ordinances, and teach truth. And the most important truth I teach is that my students, the people in my class, my primary class, I need to teach them that they have a Father in heaven. And I need to teach them that connection. They need to know that there is a heaven, a God in heaven, who is their father, and that he loves them and has a plan for them. That's truth number one. Verse 18, related to that, we've got kind of what other people have called the great, the great pillars of truth. 18 is the creation of man. Verse 20, the fall of man. And then verse 21, the redemption of man. So the creation, the fall, and the atonement, those are the gifts of God. And we need to understand them in that 
do you understand why God created the earth and why this earth fell so that we could have an environment where agency would play its part and that we would make mistakes and need an atonement? In other words, Heavenly Father in the very beginning is saying, please teach my children who I am and what I've done for them. Why did Heavenly Father create the earth? Why was the fall essential? And why do we need the atonement of Jesus Christ? Those are the basic truths that we need to be focused on. A God in heaven who created the earth, allowing for a fall, which allowed for and created the need for an atonement. So then he talks a great deal about Jesus. Notice we come to the very core of the gospel. Verse 25, as many as would believe and be baptized and endure to the end. Verse 29, we know that all men must repent and believe on the name of the Father, endure in faith on his name to the end. The gospel of Jesus Christ is faith, repentance, baptism, the gift of the Holy Ghost, enduring to the end. Let's make sure we teach the basics, that everyone in this church understands who their Heavenly Father is, what He's done in their behalf, and how they tap into that power through faith, repentance, covenants, and baptism, and following the Holy Ghost and enduring to the end. That's it. That's the basics. I would also point out verse 30 and 31, he talks about justification and sanctification. And the odd thing is, we don't talk about this a lot in the church. Um, I quite often ask my students to describe the difference between justification and sanctification, and many can't. But here it is in our basic foundation doctrine, that we know that justification through the grace of, of our Lord is just and true. We also know that sanctification through the grace of our Lord and Savior is just and true. Teach the people in your calling, whatever your calling, help them understand that they need to be justified by Jesus and sanctified by Jesus. Justification is that the debt has been paid and that you no longer have to pay the debt. Sanctification is that you've been changed. So let me illustrate with two people I've shared in the past. If you don't mind the repetition, those of you who've listened to previous podcast, there's a woman who was sentenced to 15 years in prison for the kidnapping of a young girl. And she did her 15 years and she was released. Now that young girl who was kidnapped was very upset at her release because clearly she hasn't changed. She still has the same mindset she did when she kidnapped the young girl. She still adheres to the same philosophy. So in other words, she's not changed. So why did we let her out of prison? Because she did her time. She's justified, but not sanctified. She qualified for justification and the penalty was lifted, but she hasn't been changed. Now contrast that with a young woman in Texas who committed murder and was ex sentenced to execution. And then she went to prison and she changed. Her whole life changed. She became this sweet and gentle and wonderful young woman and everyone that worked with her loved her and began begging for her release. But they executed her. Even though she changed, she wasn't justified. She had to pay the penalty for the crime she committed. So one woman was justified and not sanctified, and the other woman was sanctified and not justified. And we need to understand that Jesus plays both roles. If the only time you think of Jesus is when you've committed a sin and you're begging for forgiveness and you'd like a do-over, you're seeking justification, not sanctification. Jesus allows us to be free of the penalty of sin. He gives us a do-over. He allows us to start fresh. That's his justification power. But unless he changes our hearts, unless we allow him to change us and sanctify us, we're going to end up making the same mistakes over and over and over again. 
So we need to teach the justification and sanctification of the Savior. And I love that going back to section 20, we have one more principle that we've never really mentioned, but certainly is a foundation in connecting us with God, and that is in verse 33, let this church take heed and pray always. Now, I would say that's the foundation. Notice that it doesn't mention temples and three degrees of glory yet. Those come after we've achieved the foundation. And if we're going to go back this week and examine the, the, the very basics of the church, we need to understand that everyone needs to know who God is, what He did for them, including the Savior's atonement, how we tap into that power through faith, repentance, covenants, the Holy Ghost, and enduring to the end, and prayer, so that we are sanctified and justified. That is the urgent call to every teacher in the church to teach those doctrines. So can you just see how that flows? Did you see that logical pattern? Do you see the Lord's thinking and Joseph's thinking here in terms of let's lay out the foundations of the church, almost like we're writing a creed or something, or we're writing a manifesto, or we're writing bylaws or a constitution. We're just laying out the very basics of the church and how this church functions and what its purposes are. We've got keys and authorities and ordinances of the priesthood that we're going to offer to the world, and then we've got truth, and then there's a hierarchy of truth. Do you see See that logic? Now, what's cool is during the day, in Joseph's day, this was common practice to kind of, when you come together as an organization, that you lay out your creeds. And I know that has a negative connotation, but kind of in, in, the, in the spirit of what was going on, it's fascinating, Mike, isn't it, that the Lord and Joseph are doing exactly what other groups were doing at the same time. Yeah, this is coming out of culture. And one of the things these creeds did was they kind of drew lines of distinction. This is what we believe. This is what we don't believe. Even the idea of a Christian church or tradition comes out of culture. And even the scriptures, a lot of people don't think about, well, why do we even have a Bible? And why do we have these books? Like, why are there 27 New Testament books? Who made that decision? And why? What, you know, what about the books that didn't make it in? And a lot of these ideas are coming from the middle of the second century. And so a lot of this is academic type stuff. But for those of you that are interested, you know, it is pretty fascinating to know that there was a guy walking around in the middle of the second century that was contributing to the church. And he basically made his own New Testament. And his name is Marcion. And in his New Testament, he said, listen, we're going to cut out the Old Testament. I'm going to chuck a ton of the stuff out of the books that traditional Christians are using, there was no canonized authorized text. And Marcion's texts became like his 11 books, which is Luke and a bunch of Paul's letters, kind of became the standard. And the people that followed him were called Marcionites. And these other bishops are writing letters to each other and they're like, what are we going to do? You know, we don't have a printing press till in the middle of, you know, 1400s. Um, and so if you have scriptures, you're pretty wealthy. Probably the church would have some. But people weren't just walking around with libraries and books, right? And Marcion's spreading his gospel, and he's basically saying a lot of stuff isn't Scripture. And so out of these arguments with Marcion come orthodoxy. Uh, ortho means straight, and doxy is like thinking. So if you've been to the orthodontist, they straighten out your teeth. Well, orthodoxy is like, we're going to straighten out your thinking. And so early Christian thinkers start coming up with creeds or just a statement of belief, like what do we believe? And it really isn't till much later, like in the 400s with this guy by the name of Athanasius, where he says, I'm going to suggest that we put these books in the New Testament, and we're going to cut these books out. And Athanasius was one of these guys that was a big heavy hitter in early Christianity. He was a student of a guy by the name of Alexander. And Alexander was a bishop in, in the 300s. And Alexander was this guy who said, we've got to define Christianity. What does it mean to follow Jesus? And who is Jesus? And is he the son of God? And if so, you know, how does that relate to his substance, his essence? And during the time of Alexander, there was another guy by the name of Arius 
and Arius was a presbyter or an elder, and he had different feelings about Jesus. And we reference this in the show notes because it could be its own podcast. But essentially, Arius and Alexander went toe-to-toe on who Jesus is. And Arius's thought was, man, maybe because Jesus what prayed to his father, he might be less God than the father. And Alexander's like, no, that's not right. And they went back and forth over this. And this is where we get, and you've probably heard of this, it's, it's called the Nicene Creed, which comes out of this fight. Like we're trying to decide what it means to follow Jesus. And, and 300 or so bishops get together and they vote and they decide on a document, on a creed or a statement of belief, and they draft it and you can read it for yourself. And it's about this time that other Christians are coming up with this idea of what they call the Apostles' Creed. Now, the Apostles' Creed wasn't written by the apostles, but essentially it kind of takes on the spirit of what the apostles might have said. And it's very much like section 20 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Like we believe that Jesus came to earth, that he was born, that he died, and that he's resurrected. So these creeds are, are kind of floating around in Christianity in the 300s, and we're trying to bring people in on what does it mean to be Christian. And then around 384, we form up a canon, a rule, a group of scriptures to kind of say that, hey, this is what we're going to go with in the church. And then as we proceed towards the end of the 300s, we get another creed called the Athanasian Creed, and that kind of fine-tunes the Nicene Creed and, in my opinion, does what Thomas Jefferson says, Trinitarian arithmetic, where three become one and one become three. But after this creed, there are so many of them. And so by the time Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery are in New York, we think some of Section 20 was received as early as 1829, and some of it's received later because people wrote it down. Orson Hyde goes on a mission and writes down a lot of Section 20 as he received it, Sidney Gilbert, Zebedee Coltrane. And you can click on the footnotes and go to Joe Smith Papers, and you can see their handwriting of Section 20 and how they understood it. And this was what we spread when we went on a mission. When Zebedee went out and taught the gospel, he would take Section 20, his copy, and he would say, here's what we believe. And this would be a creed or a statement of belief, meaning this is what we believe as members of the Church of Christ. And one of the things these creeds did was they kind of drew lines of distinction. This is what we believe. This is what we don't believe. And in the 1600, like in 1655, they're writing these in America. In fact, we put one in there just as a sample for you in the show notes. It's called the 1655 Midland Confession. And you can read it. And it reads kind of like section 20. Like these early pilgrims are writing these creeds because they're trying to define what does it mean to be Christian? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And so Joseph and Oliver are told by the Lord, hey, you guys, in 1829, the Lord tells him, hey, you guys do this. And so Joseph hands the baton to Oliver and says, take the Book of Mormon and produce a document which will tell people what we believe. And so he does. And it gets edited. And it's fascinating to see how it gets edited and it gets added to. It's a great window into how Joseph is working and When it comes to the production of Scripture and analyzing the construction of the Doctrine and Covenants, Robert Woodford did a monumental dissertation just on this topic, and it's a mammoth study. It's 1,800 pages. And so we're not going to put the whole thing in the show notes, obviously, but I took nine pages of his dissertation and, and linked it in the show notes so you can see his work on Section 20. And Robert Woodford says this is a window into one of the most complex sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, because Joseph receives it, but first to put it together is Oliver, and then Joseph adds to it. And we see this in history because we have the documents. And in his dissertation, this is what Robert Woodford says. He says, this editorial work was done on the Book of Commandments in the 1835 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants under the direction of Joseph Smith, and it was approved by the membership of the church. After all the approved editorial work was completed— the DNC was sustained in its current form by the members of the church. Any variations noted in the sources other than the Doctrine and Covenants in its current form and format are therefore not accepted by the membership of the church and have no claims upon their faith. Therefore, the early manuscripts and publications of the Revelations have historical value and aid in explaining the origin of this section, but when they're at variance with the current edition, they're not accepted 
as a source of greater authority. So the church, we approve it. We sustain the revelation as it is now constituted. And then he continues. He says, if these bits and pieces of evidence really do fall into the pattern suggested, then this is a classic example of what Latter-day Saints later had revealed to them in sections 67 and 68, where we are informed that the revelations were given in the language of the prophet Joseph with all of the imperfections that he had in expressing himself. And in section 68, we're told that when a servant of the Lord is moved upon by the Holy Ghost, what he says is the mind and will of the Lord and his scripture. The historical background of section 20, therefore, appears to be the struggle of Joseph and Oliver to put into words the basic beliefs and tenets of the church and to organize their thoughts under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost into a document that is not a word-for-word dictation from the Lord, but one that was inspired by him and therefore scripture. I think that's worth realizing that the thoughts and impressions that come into their mind are then clothed with their language. And to me, that's how I read section 20 and that's how I read scripture. And so to me, the background of section 20 is a big deal because lines of distinction are drawn that I don't think really matter to Latter-day Saints today, but they did to Oliver. So one of them is verse 37. There was a time when this was not all straightforward and laid out, but once it's been laid out and, you know, a hundred years pass, we don't argue about this. We don't think about this anymore. But there was a time where they had to draw in the sand and say, here's where we are. So go back to your comments on 37, Mike. So yeah, so in section 37... Section 20, verse 37. (laughs) Stroke. Okay, so in section 20, verse 37, we get this verse... And Oliver struggles with it. This is an addition by Joseph. And again, by way of commandment to the church concerning the manner of baptism, all those who humble themselves before God and desire to be baptized and come forth with broken hearts and contrite spirits and witness before the church that they have truly repented of all their sins and are willing to take upon them the name of Jesus Christ, having a determination to serve him to the end and truly manifest by their works that they have received of the Spirit of Christ unto the remission of their sins shall be received by baptism into his church. That is going to be a verse that Oliver Cowdery is not going to like. And he's going to write a letter to Joseph Smith rebuking him and commanding Joseph to take that out. And Joseph, exercising the keys and the authority of the priesthood that he has as the first elder, says no. That is correct. We're not taking it out. Now, this is a significant kind of difference of opinion that goes back to the very foundation of the church. Oliver had a problem with the line and truly manifest by their works that they have received of the Spirit of Christ unto a remission of their sins. He wanted that out of section 20. He did not think that was our foundation doctrine. In other words, Oliver felt like the church was come as you are. Coming into the church doesn't require any specific behavior. Come into the church as a sinner with your sins, and then we will help change you. And Joseph Smith said, no, that is not the case. And this is foundational to the church that there is a bar you have to clear in order to come into the church. If your behavior does not clear that bar, you cannot be a member of the church, which means there's going to be an approval process, there's going to be permissions, there's going to be uh, interviews, there's going to be a line in the sand. And that was a big deal to Oliver and Joseph. And Joseph finally said, no, I'm not going to change it. And Oliver came eventually to see the wisdom in that line, and it remains today. But the point being, in order to come into this church, there are some basic laws you have to obey. And if you don't, you cannot come into the church. That was a big issue, and it really was confrontational between Joseph and Oliver. But Joseph stood by, this is what what the Lord has taught me, that there is a bar you have to clear in order to come in. And this isn't going to be the first time Joseph's going to face opposition in the church where people say, well, I don't really like that. I, you know, I think from this point till the time he dies, he's going to constantly be fighting this, isn't he? Yeah. 
because people are coming from their previous religions with all sorts of preconceived notions, and it's very hard to let go of them. But that's why Section 20 is so critical, is it's drawing the line and saying, this is who we are. This is the basic doctrine, documents of the church. So we've talked about how to come in. We've talked about it's, you know, that it's built on two main points, and that is we have the keys and authority and the ordinances of the priesthood, and that we have the truth, and our main source of truth is the Book of Mormon. So now let's go back to section 20. After talking about how to come into the church, now he's talking about the duties of church officers, as well as the purpose of the ordinances of the priesthood. So he starts with... Verse 38, the duties of elders, priests, teachers, deacons, and members. Notice he puts member in the same category as elder, priest, teacher, deacon. So there seems to be an office in the priesthood, or at least, I don't know how you want to call it, but a portion of the church organization is being a member. So we're all members, and some of us, in addition to being members, are elders. And so he just begins this list. Now, trying to keep this generic, I just want to emphasize that in every one of these lists, it comes back to our two main purposes, provide the ordinances by authority and to teach them truth. Let's start with apostles. Verse 38, apostle is an elder, and they are to ordain. That's an ordinance. Administer bread and wine. That's an ordinance. Confirm. That's an ordinance. And then to teach, expound, exhort, baptize, and watch over. That has to do with truth. So it's, again, those same two things. It's keys and authorities and ordinances of the priesthood and truth. Verse 46, the priest's duty are to preach, teach, expound, exhort, baptize, and administer the sacrament. See, we're, we're back to those same two. And then verse 47, visit the house of each member. It's that simple concept of how do we bless people? What truths do they need to know that would bless them? What ordinances of the priesthood do they need that would bless them? Let's go find out. Let's figure out what people need and either teach them or provide them with what they need. And he says that repeatedly. Look at 47 and 51. Visit the house of each member. This is a one-by-one kind of church. This is a take their names, know who they are, minister to them individually. You can almost see Jesus talking to Peter there in John 21, right? If you love me, feed my sheep. Verse 53, the teacher's duty is to watch over the church always be with and strengthen them. So it's a personal church. It's a people first, not programs first church. It's what do people need? So as you're reading this, think about your calling in the church. What is it that the people over whom you administer, the people you minister to, what do they need? What ordinances of the gospel do they need that the church could provide? What truth do they need? What service can I provide them? Verse 57, it's the deacons. I love in verse 59, there to warn, expound, exhort, and teach. And then this beautiful phrase, invite all to come unto Christ. The whole purpose of having a church calling is to invite people to come unto Christ, offer them the ordinances of the priesthood, and teach them the truths about Christ so that they can come unto him. Now notice, after that, so we've done apostle, elder, priest, teacher, deacon, and then we do member. So verse 68 the duty of the members. So if you're going to come into this church, you're going to be a member of the church. And you need to, I love verse 69, the members shall manifest before the church and also before the elders by a godly walk and conversation that they are worthy of it. In other words, the biggest duty of a member is to be a good example, to lead them to Christ by your good example. 
which is an interesting twist on teaching truth. Sometimes you use your words to teach truth, but more than that, your life is your teaching of the truth. Your example, especially in our homes to our own children. We not only teach when we sit down for family home evening or when we sit at the Sunday dinner table or we have a come follow me discussion. Those are more formal means of teaching. But you teach every single day by the way you treat your children, the way you treat your spouse, the kind of love that is in the home. Are you show, Are you manifesting before your children by a godly walk and conversation? that you are worthy of membership of the church. That is a beautiful thought for all of us. And we're drawing the line. If you're going to come into this church, your most important duty is to be a good example. And then I love verse 70. Every member of the church of Christ having children is to bring them unto the elders so that they receive ordinances. My most important duty as a parent is to teach them and lead them to the ordinances of the gospel and primarily to the temple. And I need to do that in my godly walk and in my conversation. Do your children see Christ? Are they led to Christ by your godly walk and conversation before them every day? I love that, that the, the duty of a member is a godly walk and to lead their children, especially verse 71, when they become accountable, when they reach the years of accountability and are capable of repentance. I love that little throw in there to all the creeds of Christendom, right, Mike? Verse 71, he just yeah. says, you're not capable of sin until you hit the age of accountability. There really aren't a lot of verses in this section where we're throwing down saying, hey, we're not you guys, but Bryce nailed it. Verse 71 is one of those. And there were a lot of people in New England at the time that had kind of those thoughts. Catholicism wasn't rooted in the Northeast, but there were some churches that had views that section 20 goes against if you look in verse 32. So if you look in verse 32, it says, there is a possibility that man may fall from grace and depart from the living God. That in this statement of belief is Joseph throwing down, hey, we're not Calvinists. We're not this. And, and if you really do study these early Christian creeds and even the ones in the 1650s, they're drawing a line saying we're this, but we're not that. And what I find fascinating is section 20 does nothing on the concept of drawing distinctions about who God is. Joseph's not rolling that out to the world yet. Now, Joseph knows. He's seen him. Joseph knows who God is. And Joseph knows that some of the views, a lot of the views in Christianity, at least amongst the, the educated elites in Christianity that are, that are teaching this stuff, are steeped in Greek philosophy where matter's bad and God can't possibly be corporeal or have a body. And Joseph, you know, I can just see him tongue-in-cheek going, yeah, I think God has a body because... <clears throat> I've seen it. Yeah, I've, I've seen him. Um, but, but he's not... It's almost like Joseph's like, I'm going to meet you guys where you're at, but I am going to draw a line here. I'm going to say things like, we're not baptizing kids. Oh, and by the way, verse 32. You can fall. We're not elitists. Yeah. We're not Calvinists. We don't guys. believe we're saved simply because we're members of this church. And his father really struggled with that. That's one of his reasons why he struggled going to the church that Lucy went to, because he was like, that just didn't make sense to him. And I, and I think Joseph, I really, to me, verse 32 I see Joseph in that, and I'm totally cool with that. I think that that's totally cool. Later, Joseph's going to explain not only God and the distinction of the Father and the Son and that they have bodies, but when we get to Nauvoo, he's laying down all kinds of awesome stuff. But in section 20, it's almost like we're, we're pitching a softball, and if I'm living in New England in 1830 and, some, and Zebedee Coltrane shows up at my house, and like I said, you can read his copy of this, I think most Christians would go, okay, okay, I get that. Let me see your Book of Mormon. And that's where we, when we get to the sections with Sidney Rigdon. When Sidney Rigdon reads the Book of Mormon, stuff starts happening. But I really like that, Bryce. I really like how you say, you know what? Verse 71 is another one of those lines. We're not doing this. Yep. So then he continues with more ordinances. So we've kind of gone through the duty of apostles, 
um, elders, priests, teachers, deacons, and members. The duty of members is to show by a godly walk that you're worthy of your membership. It's to lead your children to the ordinances. So now he begins to say, here are the ordinances, and some of which you need to lead them to. Now, let me remind you, this is early on. Clearly, the Lord wants us to lead our children to temple ordinances, but that will be added later. We're just starting foundation here, so we just have baptism and sacrament. But so in 72, he says, here's how you're going to be baptized, and here are the words that you're going to say. But he calls us to immersion, which means, again, back to this Oliver Cowdery Joseph Smith area of contention, baptism is a symbol of death, that something inside you is dying, that you're promising to give it up, to kill it. You're promising to kill that natural man. The act of coming into this church is to perform a ritual that reminds you of the need to bury the natural man, to overcome and crucify the natural man and to bury him in the water and to come out a new person, no longer living the way you lived before you joined the church. So that's that come in out of the world and jump over the bar and live that way. And then starting in verse 45, it's sacrament. So verse 76, the elder or the priest is to kneel. That is in the scriptures. The elder or priest is to kneel with the church and say the following. Now, the sacramental prayer as revealed in section 20 has two parts that we remember and promise. So in the bread, in the offering on the bread, bless this bread to the souls of all those who partake of it, that they may eat in remembrance of the body of thy son. There's the first part, eat in remembrance, and then witness unto thee. There's the second part. So the ordinance of the sacrament is to remember and to witness. And then he gives us a list of three things that we promise. Just like baptism, you have promised to overcome the natural man and to live above that bar. In the sacramental prayers, we promise to take upon us be willing to take upon us the name of Christ, as if we were labeled his. Like my wife took upon her my name when we became one and were married. We take upon Christ's name when we become one with him and we partner with him. We take upon us his name, always remember him, and keep his commandments, which he has given them. If we do that, we get the Holy Ghost. That's the witness part. Three things. Take upon us his name, always remember, and keep his commandments. Now, when we shift to the water, the most sacred part, I would say, because it symbolizes his blood. It even says that in the prayer. Bless and sanctify this water or wine to all those who drink of it, that they may do it in remembrance of the blood of thy Son, which was shed for them. And witness unto thee. So we do the remember and witness, but this time, instead of three things, there's only one. There's only one thing we promise. When it comes to remembering the blood of Christ that was shed for us, we promise one thing and one thing only to always remember him. It does not mention taking upon us his name. It doesn't mention keeping his commandments. It drops those and just says, always remember him. So if I were to boil this down to its most basic statement, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is built upon keys authorities, and ordinances of the priesthood that we have received from Christ himself, restored anew in this day. We have those keys, and we have those ordinances, and we have the truth given to us from God. And some of our truths are more important than other truths. The truths about God and Christ and the gospel are the most important truths. 
and that as you come into this church, you promise to live higher. You promise to come out of the world and live better than you were living before, more obedient to his covenants. You promise to live by a godly walk. And then everything we do in the church really comes down to leading people to the ordinances that they need that will bind them to God and teaching them the truths that they need so that they can worship him appropriately with full knowledge of who he is. So that's section 20, keys, authorities of the priesthood, ordinances of the priesthood, and truth. And then our job is to make sure that in all of our callings, we don't do more, we don't do less. We lead people to the ordinances and the truths of the gospel. And we do that one by one. We visit their homes. We watch over them. We set an example. I love what Elder Oak says in relationship to the sacrament. He says, it's significant that when we take it, we don't witness that we take upon us the name of Christ. We witness that we are willing. Yeah, we're willing to do so. And then Elder Oaks continues. He says, the fact that we only witness to our willingness suggests that something else must happen before we actually take that sacred name upon us in the most important sense. What future event or events could this contemplate? The scripture suggests two possibilities, one concerning the authority of God, especially as exercised in the temple, and the other more closely related concerning exaltation in the celestial kingdom. Willingness to take upon us the name of Jesus can therefore be understood as willingness to take upon us the authority of Jesus Christ. According to this meaning, by partaking of the sacrament, we witness our willingness to participate in the sacred ordinances of the temple and to receive the highest blessings available through the name and by the authority of the Savior when he chooses to confer them upon us. Now, you got to kind of read between the lines what Elder Oaks is saying, but I think one of the things he's saying here is that the sacrament is a prelude to something greater. I think that's a good thing that we could kind of say in regards to the sacrament. In other words, the seeds of the temple are right here. And I would throw in some scriptures if you're interested. So in the sacrament prayer that we just read in section 20, it's a willingness to take upon us his name. And then listen to this verse from the dedicatory prayer of the temple, section 109, verse 26, that no combination of wickedness shall have power to rise up and prevail over thy people, upon whom thy name shall be put in this house. There's the scripture. So the sacrament is a willingness to covenant with the Lord in the temple where he puts upon us his name. He's calling us home. Great comment, Mike. So section 21. Bryce, we've talked about this with the Whitmers, and I find this to be the height of irony that on this day, April 6, 1830, in their home, the Lord gives a revelation that Joseph's to be in charge. See, and you and I have ways of getting attention to each other. You know, I wave my arms, or I will emphasize. I think all of you listening to this podcast know when something's important to Bryce, because my voice will tell you it's important to him. The Lord doesn't necessarily wave his arms, and we don't hear his, his loud voice. And so you've got to see him doing something unusual for Joseph to get a revelation in the middle of the meeting— to pause the meeting and turn to a scribe and say, write this down, I'm getting a revelation. Tell me that's not the Lord yelling and screaming as gently as he can, waving his arm saying, okay, everyone, I'm trying to make a point now that you've got to read section 21 that way. You've got to see that the Lord is just saying, okay, in this Whitmer home, listen to what I'm about to say. I mean, can you name any other time Joseph's in the middle of doing something and then he gets a revelation in front of everyone? This is a little dramatic. It is. And so I think we need to just perk up our ears and we need to hear this. And I love the very first thing he says, Mike, is this church will keep a record. And from that moment on, we have kept a record. And if you know anyone that works for that church history department, they will tell you how serious it is that we keep a record. But then he says, 
Let's talk about Joseph's role. Isn't that what this is about, Mike? Section 21 is really just about the role of Joseph. And I love the first word he calls him. I don't know where along the line prophet stuck in our vernacular. Um, President Nelson is a prophet. Joseph was a prophet. We thank the old God for a prophet. Somewhere along the line, prophet stuck in the vernacular. But that's not the word the Lord uses first. Yeah, he's a seer. And I think that's significant. He's a seer, which means he's going to see things that we don't see. By the way, I like the word prophet. So the Navi, one of the roots of this is to bubble up, like the Sumerian word Nabu, it means like to bubble up like a spring. And so if you think about the temple, there was this idea that there was a spring under the foundation stone, under the ark. And, you know, mythologically speaking, that there was this spring under the holy place. And so a Navi, a prophet, is one who stands in the holy of holies and he bubbles up. He, he's a spokesman. And I think sometimes in our common English vernacular, we think a prophet is somebody who's going to tell me the score of the finals in the NBA or who's going to win the Super Bowl, like a predictor or a lottery ticket winner. And the ancient conception of a prophet was he was just bubbling up with his experience with God and he wanted to be a spokesman. And a seer is more in the line of Okay, they have farsight. They have far seeing. And I love the Greek word mantis. If you've ever seen a praying mantis, that's the word for seer. What do praying mantises have? They have these huge eyes. That's how I remember the word. In other words, they see now Joseph sees and he has a seer stone. And I don't know what Joseph knows on April 6th, but I find this so ironic that the Whitmer family who wanted this egalitarian church where everybody's in charge and we all kind of go with the flow and there's not one person in charge, that's what they're thinking. And right there on the day of its organization, they've seen the angel, they've seen the plates. David Whitmer has heard the voice of God and seen an angel, and then God gives this revelation. So I don't think this is just mere coincidence. I think from the very beginning, on the day the church is organized, the Lord's like, here's what we're doing. We are going to put this in order Here's the constitution, like Bryce talked about. Here's the basics. And this is who's going to be in charge. And look what it says. And your job, your duty. Give heed. Your duty is to give heed unto all his words and commandments, which he shall give unto you. And I love this. This is for Joseph. So he's speaking to the church and say, you give heed. He points to Joseph and says, you receive them from me, walking in all holiness before me. So it's not just us that's receiving some instructions. And I would imagine the Lord is speaking to the church today saying, you give heed to Russell Nelson, and Russell Nelson, you give it to them as you get it from me, walking in all holiness before me. I think that's a critical piece to add. Joseph, you give it to them as you received it from me. And you need to live worthy of that. So assuming that's happened, our job now is to give heed unto all his words and commandments. I got this Brigham Young comment. I love this. I love Brigham Young has some, he's so quotable, isn't he? He says, one time he had this experience where he was struggling. He says, I clearly saw and understood by the spirit of revelation manifested to me that if I was to harbor a thought in my heart, that Joseph was wrong, if I started to lose confidence in him, that feeling would grow from step to step and from one degree to another until at last I would have the same lack of confidence in his being the mouthpiece of the Almighty. So he talks about how he struggled with this and he says, I repented of my unbelief and that too very suddenly. I repented about as fast as I had committed the error. It was not for me to question whether Joseph was dictated by the Lord at all times and under all circumstances. It wasn't my prerogative to call him into question with regard to any act of his life. He was God's servant and not mine. He did not belong to the people, but to the Lord and was doing the work of the Lord. And so there were times when Brigham struggled. And yet he said, I repented of it. And if you look at some of the early things that are going to, especially when we get to Kirtland, this isn't happening yet, but once we get to Kirtland and things start happening, the church start growing, people start to struggle. And I love that in verse five, it says, his word ye shall receive as if from mine own mouth in all patience and faith. 
I love that addition because sometimes it does require patience and faith. Prophets usually don't see in the day of trouble. They see in the day of peace. In section 101, when the Lord is explaining what happened in Jackson County and why Jackson County saints were not given their lands back, the Lord says, They were slow to hearken unto the voice of the Lord their God. Therefore, the Lord their God is slow to hearken unto their prayers, to answer them in the day of their trouble. In the day of their peace, they esteemed lightly my counsel. But in the day of their trouble, of necessity, they feel after me. Now, one of the challenges that we face is a prophet, seer, and a revelator is going to see the trouble in the day of peace. And that is the moment. Do you receive his counsel in patience and faith because you don't see the trouble? Think about that. Noah gets on the boat long before the storm starts. If you wait for the storm to get on the boat, it's too late. You can't get on the boat when the storm starts. So did you have enough faith? Would you have had enough faith to get on a boat on a clear day? Now, I remind you, where is this boat? It's not docked in the, in, in the middle of the ocean. It's probably sitting in the middle of the land. Would you have enough faith in a prophet to say, I see trouble coming, and even though today is a day of peace, will you get on the boat in the day of peace, or will you wait until the day of trouble? Because of necessity, you will feel after God in the day of trouble, but it's often too late. I love, if you go to Helam in chapter 13, Samuel the Lamanite says to the people in Zarahemla, hey, it's the righteous that are sparing this city, but if you ever kick the righteous out, this city will be burned by fire. And then you go to 3 Nephi chapter 8, the city is burned by fire. So what happened to the righteous? Well, if you go to 3 Nephi chapter 10 verse 12, he points out, you survived because you were more righteous and you gave heed to the prophets. You didn't stone them. You didn't cast them out. You listened to the prophets. So I think the implication here is there was a day of peace in Zarahemla where there was no fire. And a prophet came and said, get out. Will you trust a prophet when you don't see the trouble? Will you obey a prophet in the day of peace? Because of necessity, you will feel after him in the day of trouble, but it will be too late. If the, if the righteous in Zarahemla waits until the fire starts, it's too late. They'll never get out. And I think that's the message to the Latter-day Saints is, I am going to speak to this seer in a day of peace. It fascinates me. I've been listening. I went back and listened to the April 2019 General Conference when we were transitioning to a home-based, church-supported church. Knowing what was one year away, knowing the pandemic that would hit a year later, I was blown away at the insight of the prophet and the brethren, the, the twelve, to shift us to a home-centered, church-supported a year before a pandemic hit. It was a day of peace. And if we didn't make the transition in a day of peace, we're going to struggle in the day of trouble. So I love that. The Lord says, you've got to receive his words in all patience and faith, because sometimes they're going to see danger in a day of peace that you don't see. Will you follow a prophet when you don't see the trouble that's coming? Now, if you do, verse 6 is the promise. If you do these things, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. The Lord will disperse the powers of darkness from before you and cause the heavens to shake for your good in his name's glory. Tremendous protection from evil if we receive his words in all patience and faith. That's the Lord waving his arms on the very organization day, on the day that we gather to organize this church. He's saying, this is what membership in this church is going to take. I think he's also given a message to Oliver, 10 and 11. Oliver, 
love you, but you are second to Joseph. And Oliver will struggle with that as well. So 21 is just riddled with irony, all kinds of stuff happening here. I mean, imagine if we were there, but we knew the future and we pulled him aside and said, hey, David, hey, Oliver, let me tell you what I know. Yep. But yet we see it after the event. Yeah. It's easy for us because it's a, we see in hindsight what they had to see in faith. So how about our descendants? Could they be telling us about what is future to us? It's just fascinating. And would we believe it? Will we obey in a day of peace? Okay, so let me throw this in. Let me just, I just, while we're speaking about Joseph Smith, I just, there's this quotation that just haunts me. And I just, after bringing that up, I just want to read this quotation. Jacob Hahn owned a mill in Missouri and um, came to see Joseph. And his mind at the time was pretty set. Joseph, he just wanted to get permission to stay on his land. When I was a teenager and I would ask my mom a question, I wasn't really listening for her answer. I just wanted her to say what I wanted her to say. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's kind of what Jacob's doing was he's like, he's asking Joseph a question, but he really isn't listening. No. He? And again, using this as an example of how to hear a prophet. Now, this is the writings of John D. Lee. And he said, there was a settlement on Log Creek between three and five miles east from far west. It was quite a rich settlement. A man named Hahn had just completed a good flowering meal on the creek. The morning after the Battle of Crooked River, Hahn came to Far West to consult with the prophet concerning the policy of the removal of the settlers on Log Creek to the fortified camps. Joseph had called them into Far West. Jacob Hahn didn't want to go. So, Brother Lee continues, Colonel White and myself were standing by when the prophet said to him, move in by all means if you wish to save your lives. That's what Joseph said to Jacob Hahn. Hahn replied that if the settlers left their homes, all of their property would be lost and the Gentiles would burn their houses and their buildings. The prophet said, you'd much better lose your property than your lives. One can be replaced, the other cannot be restored. But there is no need of losing either if you will only do as you are commanded. Let me repeat that. Joseph says, you will lose neither your life nor your property if you will only do as you are commanded. Han said that he considered the best plan was for all the settlers to move in and around the mill and use the blacksmith shop and other buildings as a fort in case of attack. In this way, he thought they would be perfectly safe. In other words, Jacob Hahn says, I disagree, Joseph. I want to stay at the mill. Joseph replied, you are at liberty to do so if you think best. Han then departed, well satisfied that he had carried his point. The prophet turned to Colonel White and said, that man did not come for counsel but to induce me to tell him to do as he pleased, which I did. Had I commanded them to move in here and leave their property, they would have called me a tyrant. I wish they were here for their own safety. I am confident that we will soon learn that they have been butchered in a frightful manner. And if you know the history of Hans Mill, you know that that's exactly what happened. So when the prophet speaks or when authority speaks, do we have that attitude like, I don't like that, I don't want to do it, and I'm going to try and convince you to tell me what I want to hear? Or do we hear the counsel given by a prophet? And that's difficult, I think, for them. In that time period, there was a lot of pushback against ideas of authority the Whitmers struggled with it, and Oliver struggled with it. And in 1838, a lot of members really struggle with it, with the idea of there's a hierarchy. In fact, even that word hierarchy is composed of two words, arc, which is a head or someone in charge. And that word hire, that first part is the word for priest. And so Joseph is in the middle of Protestant America, and he's establishing a hierarchy. And from a political perspective, this is everything the Whitmers escaped. This is everything America escaped. We got away from people being in charge, kings and potentates and popes. And yet Joseph is receiving revelation from the Lord in the middle of Protestant America. The Lord says, 
I'm going to put a hierarchy in place and Joseph's going to be my guy. And those that kept their eyes on him, they prospered. They did well. And yet those that didn't, they, they had some struggles. Now, not to say the saints didn't struggle. They certainly did. But these early sections are laying this foundation. And then he's going to take that to the next level in 22. Yeah. The idea that, well, I've been baptized. I don't need to be baptized again. The ordinance is in place for me. And the Lord's going to come back to, no, it's authority and ordinances. It's not the ordinance by itself. It's keys and authority. And those keys have been restored anew on earth today. Therefore, you have to be baptized by those who have the keys. Otherwise, it doesn't count. So he says in 22, all old covenants have I caused to be done away in this thing. This is new. This is a new and everlasting covenant, even that which was from the beginning. And then he just says, look, you could have been baptized a hundred times, although a man should be baptized a hundred times without authority, it availeth him nothing. For you cannot enter into the straight gate by the law of Moses, neither by your dead works. It wasn't the ordinance. It was the keys of the authority of the priesthood. When you had the ordinance performed, the keys were not in place. So you have to do it with keys. So we're back to that foundation that there is a prophet in charge who has keys and authority. And you have to give heed to that prophet in all patience and faith. And you need to receive the ordinances by those keys and authorities. And if you do that, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. I bear witness of the keys and the authority of the prophet. I know the heart of our prophets, and I know they desire only what is in our best interest. It's because of that desire. It's because of Joseph's walk in holiness before the Father. It's because he was in tune and could receive them directly from God that I have full confidence in whatever he says. He was a righteous, obedient man, and through him came instructions that I need. I bear testimony that the way it works today is to give heed to the authority to the keys, to the one who has been designated by God as his spokesman. And if we do that, the gates of hell will not prevail against us. We receive blessings when we follow the prophet and the seer. We just want to take a moment here and give a plug for Institute. Mike and I teach at the Salt Lake Institute of Religion near the University of Utah. Here at this institute, there are great instructors teaching a variety of classes just like this podcast. In fact, institutes are all over the world, and they are available to anyone between the ages of 18 and 30. Students can come on in and have their questions answered, learn more about the Savior and the Scriptures, and meet other young people of like faith. There's no cost to students, and you do not need to be enrolled at the university or the college adjacent to the institute. Just come and enjoy. You don't even have to start right at the beginning of the semester. If you come home from your mission or just all of a sudden decide one day you want to take an institute class and it's the middle of the semester, we'd love to have you. If you or someone you love lives near the Salt Lake Institute or any institute, please encourage them to sign up for a class. We even have online courses available. We've added a link on our website, TalkingScripture.org, that will help you find an institute near you and register for a class. And with that, we will see you next week when we are in section 23 through 26. Thanks for listening. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.